the fate of the film, next minute the distributor announces they're opening it on December the 8th. Right. You know, so it is possible to change your, your reality, to change your destiny. That's Philip Noyce. Wow, I learned so much from this conversation. We recorded this together over about 90 minutes at the very end of South by Southwest Sydney. We were in two armchairs, basically shooting the shit. We were (laughs) having a chuckle and I just picked his brain. I'm honoured to be able to say that Philip Noyce has come on the podcast. Philip is one of the world's most consistent and renowned filmmakers with a career spanning several decades. Philip has etched his mark in not only Australian cinema, but on the global stage as well. A few gems in his filmography, Dead Calm in 1989, which showcased his knack for suspense and also introduced the world to a young Nicole Kidman. The iconic Rabbit Proof Fence in 2002 was a super powerful and very moving portrayal of the Australian stolen generations. The things that he candidly chats about sound really off the cuff and casual but are really really telling about the breadth of his career the way he approaches filmmaking and storytelling he is a connoisseur I think of story we chat about the entertainment industry as a whole and how even someone like Philip Noyce is still working to get scripts up and show films to audiences because streaming giants have got their own way of doing things and I hope that you love it. I had so much that I wanted to ask him and when you have someone like that who's been interviewed a billion times about his career just sitting in front of you and he and I you'll hear have a really casual relationship. I'm not really sure how that happened but I've got it in my mind like at the the back of my head I'm conversing with him and listening but I've also got how he would want to be talking about certain things how to make the episode flow, how to not be starstruck about the stuff that he's saying because I'm a filmmaker myself. (laughs) I also wanted him to reflect on general creative advice so that it's applicable to anyone and everybody of the listenership that is Process the Podcast. I hope that you guys just honestly love it. It's a bit of a pinch me moment for me, but I hope that you love it. Before we kick off, I'd like to honour the traditional owners of the land, which this podcast was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Special thank you to Soho House for making this episode happen and the people behind the house, especially Miss Hayley Reinhardt, Lexi Rodriguez and Dominique Bellis. I could not have recorded this episode without the support of Soho House. Welcome to Process the Podcast. I'm your host, Ariel Thomas, motion director, social strategist, and founder of production company Cinematom. This podcast has me chatting to some of the world's most creative people across film, photography, design, music, and the fashion landscapes. There's this great book called Steal Like an Artist by Austin Cleon, and I really believe that hearing the way an artist across any discipline approaches their craft... It can be applied to whatever you do in your own lane. So I hope that you love this episode with all of Philip's brilliant anecdotes, examples, stories. He's just such a good guy. When we started this conversation, like literally when we were sitting there, we started just chatting casually that he was going to go see somebody that afternoon that had just had an antiviral shot and it made them feel amazing. So essentially, you're about to be a fly on the wall about the end of that conversation. We were so tired on the last day of South by Southwest. And for context, 
That's what we're talking about, getting it, distributing it out and making it a bit of a thing anyway. Be a fly on the wall for Philip Noyce and my conversation for Process the Podcast. Let's dive in. Great. Lucky no, you. not great. <laughs> you need the end. viral. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Got to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, solution to all the baby boomer problems. Yeah. Update me on how you go with that. I'm going. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but now I wonder what uh, the baby boomers are going to call the antiviral, you know, it's like Ned Kelly or something, want some Ned Kelly. That would be amazing. Maybe you could start it. What do you want to call it? Can you call it something like a name after one of your films or something so that it like Dead it's calm, like a, yeah, it, yeah oh my god call it that yeah. and, and then it'll be like a like a really big moment in pop culture and then the film sales and like whatever residuals will just like skyrocket okay all right that's very clever i guess right <laughs> so i want to give context to how we met i think you are an incredibly generous man with your time because I met you when I was 22. I just came out of acting school in the States and Sandy Goodman, ostentatious, the comedian. He's performing tonight on Di Pavilion. Are you going? going? Yeah. Oh my God. Small world. Yeah, maybe. I would love to catch up with him. He completely out of the blue, he emailed you and said, Hey, you should meet this girl. Can I pass on your email? You said, yes, but you're kind of a big deal. And you saying yes is very generous of you. Well, Sandy is a very persuasive guy. You know? <laughs> He's also liable to, uh, you know, abuse you at his next uh, um, performance, you know, if you don't yeah. agree with everything that he says. Yeah, okay. He's, he's, he, he, Does he get you on the front row? Quite, uh, oh, quite powerful. He, oh, yeah. He once came to a, a premiere that I, that, of one of my films and he pretended that he was me. And most of the people didn't know what I looked like, and he pretended that he was me on coke, cocaine. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, yes. So I came into the theatre to um, to introduce the film, and he was already up there giving my speech, except it wasn't my speech. It was his version of my speech, and it was full of profanity and, you know, and all sorts of uh, things. Was it funny, or was it a bit of a PR nightmare? Uh, uh, n- I guess it was funny, it was also, but it was confusing for most of the people because they were thinking, that's me, that's Philip Noyce, uh, and then this other guy comes in and Sandy referred to me as ostentatious. Oh, I said, I'm not, a, I'm Philip, I'm not ostentatious, <laughs> you're ostentatious. He did it very well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he's always got a trick up his sleeve, you know, so you've got to yeah, be well. careful around him. Okay. So now I know why you took the meeting. Oh, oh he, he, he says you got to meet someone. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, lead me, lead me there. And he's also, um, he was one of my students at the Australian Film and Television School. Oh. I was teaching there for a while. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and he was in the group that I was, Sandy was a uh, training to be a director. Mm-hmm. And so he was one of my students. So, right. of course, you always look after your students. Yes, of course. Is this pre your directing success that you were teaching? Yes, I was just, I had just graduated. I mean, I, I was making at the time a film called Backroads, which is what I was, I was there in order to just get money to finish the, the movie that I was trying to make. Mm. Not sure that I taught my students anything. So 
Los Angeles 2014, we met because I, we had a meeting on a Monday and then you called me and said, can you just come over now? Cause I need help blowing up these pool toys. What? <laughs> you had pool toys for your kids and you were, I think you were struggling to blow them up. Pool toys. Yeah. And you said, can you come over and help me blow up these pool toys and we'll just have our meeting now. And of course I said, yes, because you're kind of a big deal. <laughs> okay, what kind of toys were they? Bull toys. Oh, like those great big swans and things. Yes. Those ones, yes. yes. They were hard to blow up. <laughs> that was so real. Yes. Oh, so you're the one that did that. Yes. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So I, think, I I, you know, I used to smoke, so yeah. I haven't got them. I want to talk to you about who you are as a person mm-hmm. because downstairs you were telling me about uh, two nights ago, you were telling me about a gentleman called James that lives now with your family at the moment. Yes. What is in your makeup as a human that you just extend to other people? What makes you so generous? Well, um, it's not generosity. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, in this business, I've had a number of mentors. The first mentors were the people who are running the movie, the underground movie show that I went to see at Sydney University Union Theatre one Sunday when I was 18. And I hung around and afterwards they were very encouraging um, and they led me to believe that if I didn't shave my whiskers, I could call myself a film director. That is, (laughs) that anyone could do it Mm. because they all had beards and they called themselves film directors. So I thought, oh, okay, okay I'll, I'll, I won't shave. <laughs> um, so they started me, those those three guys, Aggie yeah. Reed, Albie Toms, and David Perry, very inspiring filmmakers. Mm. They were not really directors, but filmmakers, artists. Later on, K.G. Hall. Now, K.G. Hall was the great Australian feature film director mm. of the 1930s. He directed 17 films between 1932 and 1940, 17 feature films, and he was the the um, producer of the weekly newsreel over at Sydney Sound, uh, the Sydney Sound newsreel that came mm-hmm. out each each week that had a summary of the – or pictorial summary of the, that week's news. Um, and Ken came in when I was trying to work out um, how to shoot Newsfront, my first big feature, and he gave me such advice that saved so much trouble and time and money. Um, you know, he told me how to how to stage a um, a flood, told me where to put the camera, all sorts of wow. things. You know, and then when I went to Hollywood, you know, I had um, a mentor. Um, um, the producer of Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger, um, Mace Newfield, producer, very, very um, sure and true friend and colleague and mentor. Mm. So throughout my life, you know, I have uh, benefited from help, Mm. you know, a a helping hand at crucial moments. Mm. So I know how much it means to people, Mm. particularly if, uh, if they're trying to enter and pierce a process that seems impregnable, yeah. you know what? Like, how do you how do you get to be to find an agent? Yeah. How do you how do you raise money? How do you you know how do you meet someone? How do you do this? How do you mm. do that in the film business? Encounters where people um, 
ask for help, a part of the quid pro, pro quo yeah. that's helped me so much, you know. Mm. Um, uh, and usually, you know, I mean, usually if you help someone, you get it back in more than <laughs> more than you give is the yeah. truth that I found. Yeah. You know, people, you know, what is it? The love you make is equal to the love you give? Yeah, the something Beatles like that. Song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it is true, particularly in the creative arts, you know. Yeah. Because we're also vulnerable. We're also um, we all we need a helping hand constantly at mm. every stage of our creative lives. You know, mm. people do beginning, middle, end. You know, you need it as much at the end as you do at the beginning. You know, because yeah, insecurity uh, is is a natural part of the creative process. Mm. You know, you think you haven't got it, you think you'll never get it, you won't get there, blah, 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 all those things. Everyone has them mm. is what I've discovered. Yeah. Um, and often it can be just one sentence that changes a person's course. Yes. You know, think about this, try that, ring this person, you know, yeah. all, that all that stuff. Yeah, I think you told me, uh, I, sh I emailed you my showreel at the time of like a couple of scenes and you were like, nah, there was like six scenes on there or something and you were like, nah, cut it down to two or three. And it was just like, keep it really, really simple. Paul. Well, particularly in, in showreels, you know, yeah. the problem with showreels, having seen hundreds of them, thousands, um, is, you know, they're too long mm. and, you know, the person who uh, who's constructing them puts too much information in. Yes. Put only your best foot forward. Yeah, <laughs> as which could be just one one performance or one little movie or one idea or one statement. Yeah, you know, not a not ten. Yeah, totally. And most people want to put in you know quantity, not quality. Yeah, but of course it's hard to judge what is quality. Yeah, because you think that something you're very proud of is going to impress everyone. Mm. So that's also uh, a learning process. Yeah. For people, you know, well, like what, what, what is important when you're trying to impress someone creatively? Yeah, with your own creativity. Yeah, it's a hard thing impressing someone with your creativity. That's such a, I know what a show really is, but saying it like that, it's like, yeah, what a weird thing to do. Uh, yeah, well, you know, um, I mean, when you're an actor, you have to create characters. Yeah, that people can relate to, mm. and you have to prove that you can transform yourself into another person. That yeah. is, you can create a recognizable human being. And do it naturally. And yeah. do it naturally, yeah, without <laughs> appearing to act. Yes. Do you Are you helping many directors at the moment, like up-and-coming directors? Yeah, some. I have a, a, a weekly uh, session with a young Australian female director. Oh, who's amazing. Who's done two features, worked together on Sunday mornings. She has a very individual and different sensibility mm. to me. So I must admit that one of the best things about working with someone as a mentor is what they teach you, yeah. particularly a younger person, a new, another generation. Mm. But in her case, not only is she, you know, she's in her early 30s, so that's 40 years from my age, yeah. but she's a very individual, clear-minded, uh, feminist and 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 female, yeah. so she's obviously seeing everything completely differently. Mm. And so listening to what she says and investigating her um, mountains that she's mm. climbing is very re re um, educational for me. My, yeah. I don't know what it's like for her, but I love it. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, right, okay. She wants to use non-professional non actors for a start. And wow. I keep telling her, 
Well, that's okay if you're making a film for under a certain amount, but yeah. eventually you're going to have to get some actors and you're going to have to get actors that can get your movie made. So I'm yeah. trying to help her to understand that and things like that. But she's right. I mean, she has made films with non-actors mm. uh, where, like she made one set in the Opal Fields at Lightning Ridge in Western uh, Western New South Wales where she used some local people, you know, and mm. of course they were very realistic mm. and in some ways they had uh, a, a laissez-faire sort of way of talking and moving and everything that was quite distinctive because they've been out there, they work underground, you know, so that yeah. means that they're used to bending over and, you know, and it's very hot out there in, in Lightning Ridge, their pot-marked faces and all sorts of reasons why, yes, you, 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 you might think it's better. Yeah, wow. To get a real person, I'm trying to convince her though. If she wants to really guarantee a career, she needs to start choosing um, actors who can help her to finance her movie. But on the other hand, you know she's right. She's gone to Northern Maine on a some sort of writers retreat. Mm -hmm. She's won something, mm -hmm. a writing retreat, mm -hmm. uh, a prize like three months wow. in a cabin in. Northern Maine, and she's going to write her next film, which is a love story uh, set in Perth. But it's, as I said, I can't wait to get for Sunday morning, nine o'clock, you know, wow. <laughs> to listen to what she's got to say. Yeah, wow. She thinks, she thinks I'm the teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, truthfully, you do. Yeah. What I've observed is that listening to people talk and everything, you know, sometimes, you know, you can listen for an hour and then someone will say something at a Masterclass or one of those things that suddenly yeah. speaks to you know. Yeah, your talk on Monday for the um, Australians in Film. A lot of the stuff you said resonated, which is why I was so excited to talk to you. You said you left the room or the enormous amphitheater, I should say, by saying that you can change your reality, and I think that's a very inspiring thing to say. Um, well, of course, I, I was talking as a director, yeah, not as an actor, yeah, and not as a writer, yeah. It's certainly easier for a writer or a director to change their reality, yeah, than it is for an actor, yeah, because the actor is unfortunately dependent on someone else's opinion. It's punishing, <laughs> yes, it's punishing. Yeah. You know, you've got to be in the right place at the right time when the right part yeah. is offered to you. And even then, you know, it's all, uh, it just depends on whether the film turns out. Mm. I mean, you can do a great performance in a film that's that doesn't work at all. Mm. And the film just does never, doesn't matter how good you were. Mm. Um, you know, you've got to do the, have the right part in the right film that actually works mm. for anyone to take notice of your performance. So it's a... It's a and it's cruel. Yeah, it's a cruel process. It's also cruel because how many other jobs are there in the world where you where you go to an interview maybe three or four times and don't get the job? Yeah, I mean it's like you know callbacks and all that yeah. stuff. You know, you get so For, invested, you get so invested, and and then you don't and then you don't get the job. I mean, who, how but, many people would go to to? And it's not even. It's, yes. You might do that if it was for a position with a firm, mm. you know, that's going to employ you for the next three years mm. and maybe give you medical insurance and, yeah. you know, uh, sick leave and uh, maternity leave and all the other perks. But you, if, you might be 
called back four times for a one-day role. You yeah. Know, you've, you, 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 I mean, that's acting. It's yeah. like dreadful. It, the process <laughs> is like, oh, yes. my God. But how do you feel when you're really invested in scripts and stuff that never get up? Like, for example, after our meeting, you were attached to American Pastoral. How did that process work? Because you were attached and then you weren't. I was, uh, I got sick. Oh. I got uh, a bug in my stomach. Right. Called H. pylori, which is a um, uh, a bacteria. Right. I got picked it up in um, South Africa. Yeah. Uh, on the project before that. Yeah. Uh, the giver. And um, the solution to H. Pyori, pyori is to take massive antibiotics, which uh, kill everything in your stomach. Yeah. They kill everything, including the H. pylori. Your stomach is a very important producer of serotonin, the happy mm. drug. I went into a, a, to a complete, um, um, a, and also one of the byproducts of um, H. pylori is um is acid reflux. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is dreadful. So anyway, I went into um, really a, a decline for about two months, which was when they wanted to shoot that film. Right. Um, I was, however, quite glad that I wasn't shooting it because while I was doing The Giver, the producers had cast um, the part of, um, of the lead role um, and I didn't quite agree with that actor. Right. And, of course, I was flummoxed when they turned around and made him the director of the film as well as the actor. Okay. I know um, who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I was not unhappy um, <laughs> to miss making the film, even though I'd been looking forward to it yeah. for many years. Yeah. I had been looking forward to it with a different set of producers. Okay. So the original producers producer uh, uh, who brought me on uh, was pushed out by the eventual producer. Is it hard attaching yourself and really investing in scripts that don't work out? What is that process no, like? No, because the process of working on the script, it's as, it's as rigorous as actually making the film. Mm. So often by the time the film is not made, you feel like you've made it anyway. Yeah, right. Because you've been living with these things. You you often live with them for years. So it's the it's the mental agility of trying to adapt or to invent, in the case of an original screenplay, uh, to work with a writer, uh, to to invent characters, to work on those characters, and so on. It's the mental agility of working on the script is often you know at least seventy five percent of the fun. And the and the mm. endeavor. So whether you make it or not, you know, as long as you can keep making something, mm. uh, it's fine. Uh, I don't mind. Right. Uh, you know, it's. Uh, I mean, you in this in this business since I was nineteen years old. You know, I've woken up every day with this uh, um, incredible hunger to come to terms with creative ideas. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, I can't wait. Mm. to feel, okay, I'm grappling now with trying to find a good idea, do something before lunch at least, you know, <laughs> come up with something. I mean, that's just been the daily, yeah. um, not not grind, not at all, not a grind. That's been the daily pleasure of wow. being able to work creatively. Mm. I've never had any other job, mm. seriously. <laughs> 
just action and cut. That's all that I've ever had, yeah. that job. And uh, and I couldn't do anything else, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't want to. So, I don't, you know, if a film doesn't get made, it's fine uh, because usually you, 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 you've brought it a long way and you've had a long association with the characters mm. and the, circumst- the, the situations and the locations and, you know, you might have chosen all the locations and, you know, gone to even collected costume photos, everything. I mean, you've lived it. Yeah. So making the film and then ensuring that it, that it survives and gets distributed and everything is the is the last part mm. of what can be you know a fifteen year journey. Yeah, right. On a, on a story, it's a long time, and a, and a fifteen year relationship, you mm. know, with characters and a part of it also a part of it also is the um, the dance of trying to um, bring life to these projects. You're dancing yeah. with financiers, you're dancing with studios, you're dancing yeah. with streamers, you're dancing, you know, with actors, yes. producers, writers. I mean, that create, that shared creative process yeah. is very invigorating. Again, it's it's what I'm addicted to. Yeah. I, you know, it's my obsession. It's my absolute drug. Who needs antibodies when you've got this? <laughs> <laughs> but you as a director are leading all of this, right? And like your relationship. Well, you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how energetically, how do you set up, I would love to talk about the screenwriting process. How do you set that up energetically? And are you setting a tone? Is there a Phil noise tone that you love to work through? You know, it all depends on the writer, really. Mm. I mean, um, this last film that I've made, Fast Charlie, I was lucky to have a, a great novel that we hardly used any of except for the characters, um, and then a great writer, Richard Wank, who threw th- thick and thin because we lost all the money a couple of times and he just kept writing. So, like, for example, five days before we were shooting, we hadn't, we were, it was announced there is no money. Oh, God. It's Thursday and we were shooting on Monday. There's no money. The money's fallen through. And, and many weeks we wouldn't be able to pay the crew. But Richard, uh, who's a great writer, uh, 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 he wrote the three uh, Equalizer films that Denzel Washington so yes. brilliant in. There, I just had to just keep um, buoying him up and 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 being responsive to his ideas and vice versa. Right. You know, often uh, I would uh, realize we've got a ten-page, we've got ten pages to shoot tomorrow, which is not possible. Um, it's usually about five would be the maximum, and I'd just ring him up at eleven o'clock and say, "Richard, I've got uh, I've got ten pages. You've got to take down those scenes to five. I'd wake up at four a.m. in the morning, and there would be the new script, you know. And he he yeah, just wow. stayed with me. So in that case, it was all I had to do was keep buoying him. Just had to enthuse him, yeah, with um, that we could do it, yeah, because it seemed impossible. Yeah, okay. Um, then when we finished the film. Uh, because we had to cut 20 pages out of the script in order to shoot within a much reduced um, um, budget. When we finished the film, it only came to 76 minutes. That's all we'd shot, right. which is not long enough. Yeah. So Richard came up with the idea, okay, we're going to take the ending and we're going to put it at the beginning and then it'll be the um, oh. it'll be the um, we'll visit the ending hmm. at the beginning and then we'll visit it again at the end. So we reused six minutes of film at the beginning of the film it's very clever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so we got it up to the to the level that it was required. But it was all him. Wow. You know, um, 
to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> and when but, you... But, but, you know, that's an experienced craftsman. Yeah. I mean, different writers have different skills, you know. Yeah. You've got to do a lot of work with, you know, and on logic and character and so on. You know, ideally, you don't have to do much at all. Yeah. That's the perfect situation. I mean, I mean, I once had a film where I had three Academy Award-winning writers writing simultaneously for me. Two oh, wow. in Prison Danger. I had Steve Zalian, who wrote Schindler's List. I had... Uh, John Milius, who wrote Apocalypse Now, and I had Donald Stewart, who wrote Missing, all three Academy Award winners. Writing together or writing no, individually? writing separately in different, parts, in different parts of Los Angeles and sending it to me in my office at uh, Paramount. Yeah, because we had a release date, but we didn't have a script. Okay. So we had to, okay, so we said, okay, we're going to divide this into three. John, you're going to do the military stuff. Steve, you're going to do the relationship with the, with between the president and and Harrison Ford's character. Yeah. And um, uh, Donald, you're going to do the beginning and the ending. And uh, you know they they went off and did it all come together. Well, you be the judge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. So when you're actually on set directing, what sort of energy do you like to? create and enforce it all uh, it all depends but generally um it all it really does depend on the film you've got you've got to you've got to keep pushing yeah because budgets like in 1998 we shot uh bone collector mm. for 45 million dollars mm-hmm. nowadays that's a 25 million dollar film mm-hmm. it wouldn't spend 45 because everything is much faster yeah. with technology, with them digital. Um, um, you know, you do so much work in post-production yeah. on the lighting of the film mm-hmm. and the look of the film mm. that, you, that you used to do when you were shooting. Yeah, right. We used to take forever mm. to light the eyes. Yeah, okay. You know, and if the eyes moved, you had to light put another light to catch the eye. Now it doesn't matter. You can you can have black eyes, <laughs> and, they, and you just come in with the you know until teeny and, tiny little and tell the machine to brighten the eyes. You know, it yes. picks it out perfectly, and and you know. So what we used to call trimming, trimming would used to take trimming the lights would take forever. You know, in the old days, yeah, because everything had to be lit as it would look. Yeah, perfectly. You couldn't change it. Mm. You know. You could. It mm. would cost you an enormous amount to mm. change the basic lighting setup. But in designing environments for all of this to unfold day to day, but you've got to. I mean, it's a. It's a. Um, uh, on the on the set, it's a a relationship between the actors who are in the scene, the cinematographer who's lighting it because they're dictating how quickly you can move, the first assistant. Mm-hmm who's keeping track of what's got to be done yeah. in the day and reminding you constantly that you've got to meet this deadline by this moment and everything and then and the director yeah you know so so it's it's this it's this in, uh, sometimes invisible sometimes very visible mechanism mm. that has to work together including the actors now if you've got actors who are experienced like I had on my last film or like a Michael Caine they totally understand, you know, mm. and most actors do. Yeah. You know, they understand that 
uh, you know, you, 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 uh, the the the, restri- the restrictions of time. Yeah. Um, and nowadays, most crew members do too. You know. Yeah. Um, in the old days, it was different. I remember on a film called Sliver, starring Sharon Stone, I had one of the great cinematographers of all time, Vilmos Zygmunt, um, who won the Academy Award for Deer Hunter, mm. amongst other amazing films that he shot. Well, he, he used direct light, which is that for every position in the set where the actor goes, there's a s- series of lights have been placed. Back right. light, side light, fill light. Once you had done the choreography, he would come in with, you know, up to 100 different lights, including little inky dinkies for the eyes. Yeah. You know, little lights w- with snouts on the end that would point where they have to stop for the eyes because you couldn't light them up. Yeah. You couldn't change the eyes later. Yeah. They had wow. to be lit on the day. We, that is us Australians, were brought up with um, different kind of lighting because yeah. we had so little time and money mm. that we w- that Australian cinematographers used indirect light. Now, indirect light is not a specific light shined on yeah. a person's particular part of their body or whatever. It's... it's, it's um, you, you you turn the light not towards the actor but towards a, a bounce board. Yeah, and it bounces which, off, yeah. Which lights in general. Mm. Um, and so the Australians were all doing that. So that's why I tried whenever possible to use an Australian cinematographer. Mm. And on this last film, um, uh, Fast Charlie, I got Warwick Thornton, yeah. cinematographer of his own movies usually. Yeah. Um, also, uh, Wayne Blair's movies, The Sapphire and others. Um, and the reason I got him was because I'd heard that he was a real Buddha character, you know, <laughs> easygoing. Yeah. Um, but also because I knew as an Australian cinematographer, he was going to be fast and he was so fast. Yeah, wow. I mean, he would use hardly any lights. Mm. It was rare that there'd be lights right. even. So he just worked with the, the sun. Sun and... Um, and uh, or lights within a room that were right. already there, you know. Mm. I mean, when the when the lighting team went on strike one Friday, as they used to go on strike every Friday, someone on that movie, um, <laughs> I turned to uh, uh, to to Warwick and I said, "Oh, the lighting team have gone out." He said, "Don't worry, we don't need them." <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Don't let them know that, but sure. <laughs> it was a big scene with um, Pierce and uh, Brosnan and Marina Baccarin. He went into the set and he said, watch this. He turned on two little lamps. He said, lit. Right. That's <laughs> yeah. what you want, right? Yeah, ready to go. God, your first AD must have been happy. Get that going. <laughs> so your relationship with cinematographers, because every cinematographer is obviously different and has a different style, what kind of relationship do you like to develop with them? Well, um, you like them to be um, to be inventive. You like them to show you things that you hadn't thought of. The same thing you like from everyone you work with. The ideal working environment on a, on a, on a movie is that the people around you are confident enough to keep giving you good ideas that you can call your own. <laughs> I mean, that's, yes. that's how it all is meant to work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and that's—I uh, mean—it's uh, 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 which means you've got to have a hard back mm. 
because they've got to know that you'll be keep pushing forward, but a soft front. So they know that they can come to you and say whatever. Mm-hmm. That's shit, you know. <laughs> that's terrible. Why are you doing that? Or whatever, you know. Yeah. Because um, you need that, that core group mm. to be able to interact with you to your advantage. And you're trying as much as possible to set them up to, to as I said, to, to make you look good. A good film crew, I mean, if, you, if you're assigned, let's say, you know, we had you, someone over there, and me, mm. and we measured the creativity of each of us. <laughs> yeah. So you're eight, he's six, and I'm four. Yeah. So what's that? Eight and six, six and eight are 14, and I'm four, 18. Yeah. So, so 18. But when we're all working together, yeah. 18 can be 80. Yeah. Because you bounce off each other and, yeah. you know, lightning strikes and st- shit happens, you know, and that's mm-hmm. what you want. You want the sum total of the creativity of each individual to be multiplied many times over because of the environment that you set up mm. for people to exchange ideas and to work off each other. Yeah. That's, that's the magic. How do you think you establish that? Chemistry? Uh, you establish it by not being not, not too overbearing, which I am a little bit now and then. You know, it comes with the size and the. <laughs> you are six foot five. <laughs> Three hundred eight pounds. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, you have to be really careful. That you're not too pushy because yes. they'll get scared. You know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Listen to them and encourage them. You know, encourage them to be creative. Mm. Whether they're actors and they uh, have a different opinion. I mean, a lot of people um, throw up their hands when the actor says, I can't do that. You say, why? And they say, because my character wouldn't do it. Mm. I actually think that's a great breakthrough moment because it means now the actor's taking responsibility for the character that they're playing. Yes. You know, that's actually the eureka moment when they say, I can't do that. How do you approach problems across the board? Because you must just put out fires everywhere. You've got to be calm. You've got to be positive. Yeah. You know, there's so many things to complain about. <laughs> yeah. You know, we haven't got enough money. Haven't got enough time. Haven't got the right lenses. Yeah. It's too late. Mm. <laughs> Doesn't matter. You can't solve it now. Yeah. Uh, there's not enough time. So what are we going to do? Come up with a with a solution. Do you usually find the problems? the answers to problems alone and you think really hard about them or do you are you more collaborative as a problem solver? There's never enough time. You could take three days to do one day's work or you can take half a day. I mean, what I do is I try the night before to have an A plan, a B plan, a C plan and a D plan. So you go through the next morning, mm. the next day's shooting and you make a plan. I write it down and issue it. You, you know, you know... Having done that, yeah. that, you know, scene number one will be either four shots or you could do it in two mm. or one even, you know, you, so you've already worked it out. The night before is so important, you know, and that comes from working in Australia where we didn't have a studio. Yeah, okay. So a studio I found when I was in Hollywood, you know, if you got into trouble, they'd just give you a bit more money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but if you, whereas in Australia, we'd always, you got into trouble, well, you won't finish your movie. Yeah, you Don't finish the movie, you're in big trouble. Yeah. You know, plus in Australia, the completion guarantee rebate that is, each film had to have insurance, it still does in America, mm. insurance 
uh, an insurance policy, you pay a certain amount, usually about uh, like 500000 for a $10 million shoot, about premium. Yeah. In Australia, we used to have the rebate. So if you didn't call on that money, yeah. you would get money back mm. and the director would be paid out of the rebate. Oh, okay. So, what do you think we're gonna we're gonna go over? No <laughs> way. Think we're gonna finish on time? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we just got it into. We all got used to that, yeah. which is why the cinematographers were also so fast. Yeah, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, got to get it done. Push a little bit of our rebate to them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I see how Everyone it works. was feeding off the rebate. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> um, um, you have had an incredible career. I want to talk about present day. Present day, yeah. Yes, downstairs the other night you were telling me that you are very inspired to do the genres that you haven't do, done yet, which is comedy. Fast Charlie was your first comedy? Yeah. Where are you finding inspiration at the moment? It's not so much inspiration. I mean, uh, uh, six or seven different scripts being yeah working on at yeah. once the cheapest one will be like five million yeah and they go up to a hundred you hope that you can get the money or the actors or the studio or whatever it is that you need to make the hundred million dollar film yeah but you've <laughs> just like <laughs> preparing a b c d and e mm -hmm. um plans for the next day's shoot you have to do that with the films but also there are certain um, crazy things that come with spending $100 million and certain simple, uh, dramatic situations that come for making a film for $5 million. Yeah. So each of the films are different, uh, and you can be much more creative on a $5 million film than you can on a hundred. You know, a hundred, you've got to make sure you deliver certain elements that are going to uh, uh, get a response from a maximum number of people. Yeah. Uh, for five million, you know, it could be just for your family almost. Uh, not really, but I'm <laughs> yeah. saying, you could, you know, you've got more leeway. I don't like to pigeonhole myself and say I can only do this, I can only do that. Yes. I'm only interested in this type of movie, you know. Um, the worst thing that could happen to me is that they took my license away. Okay. You know. Mm -hmm. It almost happened in terms of driving. I mean, you know, when you turn 70, you have to go and do a whole new test. <laughs> yeah. In how'd Los you Angeles. How'd yeah. you go? You passed? Oh, no, I didn't know. Ah. The questions are like, they're all, they're multiple answers. There's five answers. You've got to choose one, but there's three correct answers. Oh. But one of them is the most correct. Oh, and the two that are also correct, like, for example, if you are driving, you know, what's the alcohol limit that you're allowed to have? 0.05. But what about if you said 0.03? Yeah, it's also correct. But It's also correct. But it's not what and that would mean you that say. you would not be exceeding 0 0.05. Mm. But if you give 0 0.03, as I did, no, you fail. How, how far before you turn right must you signal? No idea. Exactly. Well, if you said 200 feet, that would be too early and you'd fail. Right. You know, I studied and studied and went in and <laughs> then I failed. Then I studied and studied and studied and they have sample tests. And I did all the sample tests yeah. and went in three times I failed. So then the last time I thought uh, I was just driving along past the DMV. I thought, I'll go in. I'll just 
take the test without any preparation. Yeah. Of course, I passed. Oh, God, okay. Right. <laughs> so um, what was the question? Yeah, take your <laughs> license away. Okay. So if they took your license to make films, yeah. which they will do, you know, I'm 73 years old. Yeah. You know, there's ageism. I'm also a white male, you know. Um, we've had our day and everyone sort of, you know, is wanting us to go to the old people's home, you know, um, and just take it easy and, like, yeah. let the youngsters uh, make the movies and make the uh, great big yes. um, statements and entertain and be connected and all that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the fear is that they'll take the license away, just like they tried to at the DMV, mm. and in which case I'll just go in there when <laughs> no one's ready and start shooting. Because I know, I know <laughs> from being a patron of the Smart Firm Film Festival yes. that you can make a film on your smartphone. Yeah. You can write the script, you can film it, you can edit it, yeah. and you can monetize it yeah. all from your phone. Yes. And the Raka Raka brothers, the mm. two brothers, Australian brothers, and many other filmmakers have vibrant careers on YouTube yeah. making little exploitation or com comedic films and, and finding hundreds of thousands of people who, Their who, audience, who yeah. click onto them, you know. So there is no stopping us anymore, yeah. even if they take the licence away officially. <laughs> How have you gone with diving into comedy late in your career? How did you approach that? By not... By not stressing it, the comedy in that in the new in the new film, yeah. Fast Charlie, uh, creeps up on the audience. Okay, you know it's situational comedy and and one and and often uh, um, comedic lines or the deli the delivery of the line is comedic. It turns it into comedy. How I approached it was not to approach it, right. Because I thought that if I did what anyone else had done, you know, it wouldn't be, wouldn't, it wouldn't have push a, 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 a newness to mm. it, you know. So I tried not to, not to study comedy. The mm -hmm. opposite, um, just look at the script that Richard had written and and work with the actors. You know, mainly it was in the writing. The work was done by the writer. Yeah. I must admit, although even he was surprised the first time we screened the film, comedic lines that the audience were breaking into clapping on and stuff like that. So it's like he was surprised as well. Um, it's not going to be a big film. It's, you know, it was a small film. It's so far it's got good reviews, but, uh, you know, and that, that's surprising, but welcome, a welcome surprise. But you set that up. You did that. I didn't set it up. I didn't cheat. No, you, you invited the reviewers. You weren't going to get distribution, right? Uh, it wasn't that we weren't going to get distribution. We weren't going to get theatrical distribution. Yes, okay. So what I decided to do was to find a film festival to, to premiere it in. And the film festival I chose was chosen for two reasons. It was late in the year mm -hmm. in Mill Valley, which is near San Francisco, Mill Valley Film Festival, because I wanted to leave as long as possible for the strike to finish so right. that Pierce could come. As it turned out, he couldn't come to the, to the premiere, strike still on uh, when the film uh, uh, premiered. But secondly, it was because that festival is my talisman. When I had Rabbit Proof Fence and I brought it to America, I put it in that festival. Okay. And we screened it there. Mm. Uh, it won an audience prize, but also it, as soon as the festival over, it, it opened in the same cinema right. in San Rafael 
in, in Northern California and played for four and a half months. Wow. It was the single biggest cinema, grossing cinema in North and South America for that film. Wow. So for me it was like, okay, so I've got to take the film back. Then secondly I thought, okay, so the distributor said, we're not going to help you. We don't believe that the, this film will be helped by uh, by um, being in a film festival. Mm. And I said, well, well, at least will you pay 100 bucks for the DCP, the copy to be yeah. sent? They said, no. <laughs> 100 bucks. Took 10 minutes of Brutal. six people talking about not spending 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I said, all right, okay, all right. Fine. Yeah. I said, will you help me uh, to promote the film by organising a screening? Ah, oh, no, we can't do that. We, ha- we haven't got the, you know, whatever, I don't know, the, whatever the excuse was there. So I organised the screening uh, and, and, and then got people into the screening, invited the two most influential reviewers mm. for Variety and Deadline, yeah, Deadline, the two hardest, toughest reviewers, but surrounded them with real people. So they could see the film not through what normally happens, which is either they get a link and they see it at home or they see it with other people like them who are cranky reviewers who, you know, I've got to see yet another movie. And, you know, uh, so they saw it with wait staff mainly, uh, um, uh, waiters, front of house from restaurants and and people. Um, And uh, we got great reviews, you know. So so suddenly the, the, the... the fate of the film, next minute the distributor announces they're opening it on December the 8th. Right. You know, so it is possible to change your your reality, to change your destiny. Yes. Um, it took a lot of uh, took a lot of work you yeah. know, to, like, get all those people together. <laughs> like there was two reviewers surrounded by 60 so-called normal people. I, I hope it works. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> now the film's going to have a, you know, and now the next thing is to try and push them to give it, to, to really spend money. Yeah. Because they're, they're risk averse. That's so frustrating. Yeah, it is. Mm, but, you know, yeah. that's the, that's, it just is. Yeah. So mm. now it's on, you know, to try and, uh, uh, and, and show them mm. That they can find an audience, that they can do well, they can make money by spending money, as opposed to making money by not spending money. Yeah. Because their plan with most of their films is they they pay whatever they pay for the movie, knowing how much they can license it yeah. to streaming and and uh, uh, video on demand, like through through cable stations and so on. Yeah. So they so they pay ten. And they hope to make fifteen. Yeah. No. So, um, whereas if they spend money on a theatrical release, which they're bound to do, they have to do anyway. It's in the contract. But if they spend money, they might lose money because right. they could spend because it costs a lot to open a movie. Yeah, of course. So fascinating. You know, mm. That's the so the conundrum is how do we convince them that they should take the risk of spending money, which means maybe. Well, you know, their formula won't work. Mm. The formula, which is don't spend any money, just license it. So yeah. they, they, they buy the license and then they on-license. Yeah, okay. You know. Mm. So are we likely to see an international theatrical release? Oh, yeah, it's been sold everywhere. Okay. But here in Australia it'll be on 
uh, Amazon. Amazing. The Australian distributor Rialto sold it to Amazon. Okay. Amazon are considering a theatrical run for it. They'll wait for the American yeah. date to hit. So To be continued on that. To be continued, yeah. But it's sold everywhere. It's yeah. sold in every market. Great. Congratulations. Yeah, we sold it at Cannes. Amazing. Uh, in the marketplace. So Great. Yeah. Rabbit Brew fans, you're remastering for 20 years. Not 20 years, it's actually 21. What is expected to change in the um in the mastering process? What's expected? Um it's it's been it's been recolored, although it looks the same, but it's more <laughs> more vivid. Yes. It's on 4K which just means that it's powerful in imagery as uh, IMAX. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's latest technology. Um, we went back to the negative, the film negative in wow. Canberra held by the National Film and Sound Archive and transferred it from that, then painstakingly pa- uh, repaired all the damage that had been done, the handling, everything, for months and months and months. Then we re we re um, um Coloured it, but not it's the same colour essentially. But a lot of things that we couldn't do before because it was shot on film, yeah, mm. and delivered on film, yeah. So we couldn't do a lot of stuff. You know, the, there's limitations. So now we took the film, transferred it to digital, and then and then worked on it. It's um, uh, it's just more vivid. Yeah. It's exactly the same story, of course, yeah. but it is more vivid in a storytelling. Um, plus, but most importantly, we'd reach, it had reached its life, uh, at the end of its life. We couldn't keep um, uh, renewing the licenses with the various distributors all around the world because we're offering only yesterday's technology, 2K Master. Ah. Everyone now took... T- for them to sell it to cable and not cable to Strangers, streamers yeah. and so on, they want 4K Dolby Vision. Mm. So, so we've future-proofed the movie for Amazing. the next 20 years. It's well, I don't know, 15 <laughs> or at least. It's good. It's it's you know it, it ticks all the boxes. Wow. And immediately we announced this, we resold it to France, UK, Italy, um, Scandinavia. You know, are, you, are you redoing that with a lot of your films? No, because I don't own I, this one, the only one that I own. Oh. Or some of the very early ones. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, you know, they're owned by studios. Yeah, okay. But I have worked on, yeah, I did uh, with Paramount, I did Fair and Present Danger and Patriot Games. I did that um, over the last couple of years, yeah. Is it hard revisiting your work like that? Or is it fun? In the case of Rabbit Proof Fence, it's not hard. It was because there were so many technical issues with grain and stuff. It was shot on film and, mm. um, you know, so I was so glad to be able to yeah. do certain things that heightened the experience for the audience. Um, it's not hard with those bigger films, although trying to take a film that was sh- shot that long ago, like the first one was early 90s, so the style of the formal style of photography is quite different to the to the kind of things that you would do nowadays mm. shot in a much more formal old old school way mm. so mainly it was messing it up a little bit both <laughs> yeah. films you know not yeah. being so perfect in in the way it was lit and yeah it was just to, to scrunch it up a little bit to make it feel more modern well i can't wait to see it the Rabbit Proof Fences will be out soon. 
Great. Yeah. Who's got it in Australia? Icon. Icon. And what's streaming? Mel Gibson's company. Oh, I didn't know that he was attached to that. Yeah. So what's the streaming? Well, that's up to them. They'll sell it on on sell it, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's already been sold and sold and sold and sold again in Australia. I mean, it's continuous screening for the last 20 years. You know, it's on all the time. Yeah. I mean, on television. Yes. In schools and everything. Well, thank you so much. Okay. For joining me. Thank you. Um, I'll see you in LA soon. I'll buy you another gin and tonic. (laughs) Have the best time in Brisbane. Okay. And I'll see you soon. See you soon. That brings me to the end of my chat with the incredible Philip Noyce. Fast Charlie is on Amazon and it's received such good reviews. So go and check that out. And Rabbit Proof Fence in Australia is on Stan. I believe internationally it's on Netflix. This week I'm going to create a couple of posts on social media that feature and highlight Phil's work. Follow Process the Podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook, wherever you stay up to date with the things that you love. The more subscribers and listeners this podcast gets, the better guests that I can get on and deep dive with. So review, share it, forward it on to somebody that you think would love it. I will see you again next week. And if you guys haven't noticed, I'm going all in on this podcast. It means the world to me that you listen. And next week's going to be a bit of a personal episode. I'm doing one of those once a month, sharing the ups and downs and updates of my own career behind the camera, working with commercial clients. I will see you guys next week.